Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, you can join me in turning to your Bibles to the book of Revelation and chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under a seat nearby. And Revelation 21 is on page 1041 in those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you're welcome to keep that one. We'd love for you to have it. Well, this is the final sermon in our series on the story of the Bible, Unfolding Grace. And this will be my last Sunday here for a bit as well. So um, I shared before them I'm beginning a sabbatical at the uh, end of this week. So I'll be stepping away from my normal responsibilities um, here with Zionsville Fellowship in order to uh, focus on a time of renewal. So beginning next Sunday, Taylor Sutton will begin a series on Jude, and then others will um, continue on from there. So I'm grateful for some of you that have said that you um, will be praying for me uh, and my family during this time. So thank you for that. And um, I would love your prayers. You can pray for the Lord to bring um, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, emotional renewal. Renewal is the key word for um, a sabbatical. And so we'll miss you all. Uh, I'll miss you. Christine and I were just saying that uh, just as we were gathering here this morning. So I'm hoping to return uh, re-energized for the next season of ministry. Uh, but you'll be in good hands with one another and, most importantly, the Lord uh, and your leaders. So look forward to re-engaging with you when I return. So this morning we're turning our attention to the ultimate future. Uh, the goal of all things. We're seeing in this series that the Bible is telling one overarching story, and it's the true story of the world that we find ourselves as a part of. And so we find our identity and our purpose within this story. Um, it's not just a story we enjoy and read out in front of us. We're actually part of it. And so before we read this text, I want to review what we've seen in this story so far because it prepares us for this final moment. So here's five high points of the story that we've seen so far. For five words, one of them is two words. I couldn't bring it to just one, but five words plus one uh, for the story so far. So first, creation. So God made the world good in its original state, and he made humanity in his image with dignity. And he gave them a purpose to multiply and fill the earth with his glory. They were made in his image to reflect his character as they rule the world and worship him in all of life. And so that's why we were made. But Adam and Eve rejected God, and so now the world is filled with sin. It's cursed with death, saturated with sorrow, and we're living in this current state of the world. And so God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, and we've been living in exile from our true home ever since. But he sent them out with a promise that through Eve, through the line of Eve, he would send a Savior who would crush the head of Satan, signaling as this promise unfolds that he will get us back to Eden, but better. He will restore the lost blessings. He will defeat evil and its source and death and sin. So, first creation. Second word, exodus. Uh, we saw that God had promised to continue this line of the Savior through Abraham, who became the people of Israel. And when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, God delivered them out of Egypt, and He delivered them. And one of the reasons why He delivered them was to create a picture of the ultimate great deliverance that all of humanity needs and that Jesus would one day bring. 
delivering us not just from slavery from a foreign power like Israel experienced, but slavery to the powers of sin, the forces of evil, and death itself, and to do it through a Passover lamb, a substitute who would be sacrificed in our place, and he'd bring us to himself, just like he brought Israel to himself. Third, so creation, exodus, third, kingdom. God continued to unfold this promise through the line of Eve and Abraham and Israel, ultimately through the line of David, the great king of Israel. So this Savior would come through David's line, and he would be a faithful, faithful in ways that no king or no human has been, a faithful king and an eternal king, and he would rule forever, and he would bring God's kingdom into the world, which is a way of saying he would restore the world to the way it was always meant to be, in a world of peace and justice and it'd be for all nations. Fourth, the new covenant. So Israel and their kings spiraled downward into complete disaster, and God promised through the prophets, prophets like Ezekiel, like we saw a few weeks ago, that he would make a new and eternal covenant, this covenant relationship with his people. And at the heart of that promise is him promising to fix humanity's deepest problem, which is the problem of our own hearts. He would give us new hearts. He would send His Spirit to transform us from the inside out. He would completely cleanse us from our sins. And He would, by the Spirit's power, actually create a people who would obey Him, who would love Him, who would trust Him. So He would promise to give these new hearts. Fifth, Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill all of these promises and to bring this story to its completion. He came as the promised offspring of Eve who would crush Satan's head. He came to deliver us in the new exodus, delivering us from sin and death and Satan by being a substitute for us on the tree. He came as the faithful and eternal king from David's line to bring in God's kingdom. And he pictured that restoration of God's kingdom and the restored blessings of Eden everywhere he went as he healed people from their diseases, as he cleansed them from their sin, forgave them of their sins, and as he cast out demons, as he calmed storms, wherever he went, he was spreading the blessings, the lost blessings of Eden, the kingdom of God. And at the heart of his story is the death and resurrection. On the cross in his death, he took the curse of death, which is why he had to die, right? Taking on this crown of thorns, this, the very symbol of the curse, right? Thorns and thistles, uh, and he bore that in our place, though he didn't deserve it. And then he rose again from the dead, showing that he did, in fact, pay for our sins, and he is now the risen king. And then he poured out his spirit, that promised blessing of the new covenant, to give new hearts and transformation so that people will actually trust him and follow him and be transformed. So that's the story so far. Creation, Exodus, kingdom, new covenant, Jesus, and now we have the sixth and last word, restoration. So let's read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8 together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've given it to us this morning. So we pray that you would help us to understand it and be transformed by it by the power of your spirit. So open our eyes to see your beauty in Jesus and to be transformed by this sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the whole section we just read is part of this book of Revelation, which is by and large a symbolic vision. So we need to be careful about interpreting it. And so this text is pointing in the direction of this, how great this future will be. And here's what we see. We see that this future restoration will be the best of this life minus the worst of this life plus God, who's better than life. And so let's just walk through each part of that and then see how we get in on this. So first, it will be the best of this life. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So we're coming to the end of a story, right? Do you remember how the story began? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very first opening statement of the story of the world and the story of the Bible. And now at his conclusion, John, who's recording this, is saying that that world this world will be recreated anew. So here's what this shows us, right? That the Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and then the Bible ends with a new heavens and a new earth. Here's what this means. It means that our future will not be an escape from creation, but a restoration of it. We're not waiting for the end of the world we're waiting for its renewal. So the key to notice that our eternal home here and our eternal future, the key to notice is that it's not going to be uh, what some of us might normally think of as heaven, but it's a new creation. So notice John didn't say, I saw heaven for the earth was no more, right? He said, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So just like the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he'll recreate them, the sky and the land. And why is that? It's because you and I are human beings, and we were made for life in a world like this, a physical creation. So we have bodies. Uh, we are not spirits trapped in bodies. We are embodied 
creatures. So salvation is not about being set free from the prison of physical existence. Those ideas are more at home with ancient Greek philosophy. There's no conflict in the Bible between spiritual things and physical things. They belong together. So uh, what does this mean then for what we think of happens when we die? Christians going to heaven when they die. Well, that's true. But in Christian theology, we refer to that time period when our spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven and our bodies go on the ground. We refer to that as the intermediate state, meaning it's temporary. It's an in-between period, in between our life as embodied creatures, how we were made to be, and the new creation yet to come when we'll be resurrected and reunited with our bodies. Because our physical and non-physical parts of us, that's all a whole, and they belong together. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, speaking about the creation itself. He said, at this time when our bodies will be raised as well, he said this, the creation waits. I mean, picture that. The creation itself is waiting for something. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So in this context, it's referring to the resurrection of God's people. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's the beginning of the story as well, when sin entered the world and the ground was cursed. But it was, it's waiting in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The whole creation, Paul says, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What an amazing picture. The physical created world is subjected to futility because of us and our sin, as a consequence of our sin. And it's waiting for the day when God undoes the curse, raises us from the dead, to restore us to how we were supposed to be without sin and death. And then in the wake of that, the creation itself will be set free to flourish and thrive like it was always meant to. So human history is waiting for the day that God says what he will say here in verse 5 of our text. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not making new things or different things. I'm making all things new. So he will take the best of this life and he will renew it and give it back to us to enjoy forever. So here's what this means for us. Our eternal future is not the end of all that is good. It's the restoration of it. In Genesis 1 and 2, God made the world as an overflow of his goodness, of his wisdom, of his creativity, and we see that reflected in the world today. He made the beauty of this world to be enjoyed. In 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul speaks about a teaching that was traveling around in the first century and affecting one of these churches that he was um, caring about, the church in Ephesus, and he calls this the teaching of demons. And the teaching of demons is not maybe what we would have expected it to be. You know what it is? Here's what he says. He says that people forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected 
if it's received with thanksgiving. So true spirituality isn't so much like living like a monk in the wilderness and abstaining from things, but delighting in God and his good gifts. And for Paul, the teaching of demons was rejecting God's good creation and not receiving it with thanksgiving. Isn't that amazing? So he made bees to be marveled at. Some of you do that. Uh, He made sunrises to be enjoyed. He made your taste buds to enjoy raspberries. Uh, If you don't like those, fill it in with something else. Uh, He gave us legs to enjoy biking and running. He gave us senses to enjoy the feeling of warmth from the sun. He gave kids, he gave you trees to climb. Uh, He gave us friendship and campfires and fruit to eat and stars to look at and marvel at. He gave us mashed potatoes and mangoes and pears. He gave us coffee. He gave us minds to think with, hearts to love with, senses to feel with, voices to laugh with, faces to smile with. He gave us the capacity to create. And so in the wake of all that, he's given us through the creative capacities, Bach and Lord of the Rings and Hamlet. And these gifts are not bad. They're not temporary. The problem comes when we love these gifts more than the giver. That's idolatry. But when we love the giver and receive his good gifts, that then is an opportunity to honor the giver and glorify God by enjoying him and his gifts. So as you enjoy the best things of this life that God has given you to delight in, thank the Lord for them, for these gifts, and know that these aren't, it's not like sand going through your fingers. He's giving us these things to enjoy forever because he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to renew all things one day. And so one of the good gifts of the gospel, one of the blessings of the full salvation is enjoying God and his gifts forever. So he gives us the best of this life. Second, that's the first part. So second, our future is the best of this life minus the worst of this life. So John not only tells us what will be there, but he tells us what will not be there. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more tears, or mourning, or crying. Do you notice how personal this is too? He will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Have you ever done that to somebody? It's not just getting rid of wetness on a cheek, right? It's an It's an act of compassion and love and sympathy. And God portrays his comforting presence that way, in a deeply personal way. Uh, So he sees every tear that drops from your eyes, and he cares about it. And though we wonder, how long, O Lord, why is this taking so long? Uh, The Lord has reasons, and one day he will wipe every tear away, and you'll never grieve again. God does not passively overlook your suffering. I mean, think, when have you maybe cried the past couple years? 
Maybe you lost someone you love. I know many of you have. Parent, spouse, maybe a child during pregnancy. And you still grieve every day. Maybe you have some chronic pain that brings you to the point of tears. Maybe you feel lonely and isolated or you have in different times. Maybe you sink into depression. And what this reaffirms for us is that God is not distant from you or aloof from you. He is not uncaring. He is not unmoved. He is going to bring your story to this culmination if you are safe in Christ. So there's no more tears. There's also no more death. God said to Adam, in the beginning, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die, and death came. Spiritually that day, physically eventually. So when sin entered the world, it brought death with it. Death is God's just judgment for sin. And eternal death is the just consequence for the infinite offense of sin against a holy God. But the story of the Bible is the story of God's unfolding grace. So though we deserve death, Jesus came to take our death upon himself, which is the significance of the cross, uh, that we might not suffer it, so that he was raised so that we could be raised with him forever. So this hope is what, part of what gives uh, the Christian worldview it coherency, by the way. I mean, one way of understanding um, why death is here is just understanding how it fits into the story of the Bible and how that makes sense of our own experience of life. So if death is all there is, and you do not have this Christian story to make sense of it, if death is all there is, then that can make life meaningless. Our culture is trying to keep meaning and significance alive while viewing death as the end, uh, the ultimate end. And I don't think that will hold up, and I don't think it's satisfying. Um, you see this reflected constantly in our culture if you have ears to hear. Um, just this last week, I was watching, just watched this video that went kind of, I don't know, viral is the word for it, but it kind of had circulation of a, a younger guy giving encouragement to whoever was watching this video in his social media feeds. And it did feel encouraging for a few moments, and he was smiling, trying to give encouragement, and he said something like, we're all going to die. And that means that nothing matters. Literally, nothing matters. And he was smiling, and it's understandable. He was smiling because what I think he was intending to mean there is that, like, the things that stress you out, like the people that bother you, all these burdens, like, they don't matter. Like, death's going to wipe all this out. Like, death's coming, and it's the end, so nothing, he said, literally nothing matters. So if you think about those things, you can see how that could give a comfort, but it only takes a few more moments of thinking that through to its end where you realize that's not comforting because that means the things that we think and want to matter don't matter as well. If those other people don't matter, you don't matter. If nothing matters, then the things you love don't matter. And so... Uh, he's right in one sense. If death is all there is, then nothing's ma nothing matters. But that's only comforting if you think it halfway through. Because we recognize in light of the Bible that if, if that's the message that we have, and that's all the message that we have, then it's ultimately crushing in the end. But 
Here's what the story of the Bible shows us. It shows us that, um, it gives us this comfort and satisfaction that these things we know matter, there's a reason why we feel those, that way, because they do matter. Beauty matters. Love matters. Life matters. Justice matters. Dignity, human dignity matters, and it matters because death is not the end, because God has created the world, and He's made us in His image, and He is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty, and we're enjoying that, and we feel it in our bones. And He's telling us where this story is going is the continuation of all that is good forever, because death is not the end. There is further fullness of life beyond death and beyond even the return of Jesus. So God says to us, death will be no more because life matters. You matter. You matter to Him, which is why He wants to make sure death is not the end for you, which is why Jesus died and rose for you, and He gives us this great promise. So here's the point. The new creation will be the best of this life minus the worst of this life. It'll be a return to Eden, but better. Once sin entered the world, everything became fractured. Our relationships with one another became broken. We struggle with physical health and mental health and emotional health, spiritual well-being, and the creation itself, as beautiful as it still is, even in its brokenness, has some beauty in there. I mean, look at some desert wastelands even have beauty, though that doesn't seem to be the way it was intended to be, and we'll erupt into flourishing in the new creation. So we get glimpses of what this world could be. And in the new creation, that'll, that potential will be fully tapped. And we'll enjoy the flourishing of a world forever. So all that's sad, all that's wrong, all that's broken, they're called here in verse 4, former things. So one day, a billion years from now, you'll look back on all that brought you down and weighed you down, and made you sad, and it will be just a collection of former things, things in the past never to be coming again. But this isn't the best part. The new creation will be the best of this life minus the worst of this life plus God, who's better than life. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, literally the tent or tabernacle of God, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The word for dwelling place is the same one used um, in the Old Testament to refer to tabernacle. So the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament we've seen in this series were these mini symbolic Edens, and the heart of the tabernacle and temple was the most holy place, which was the place where God had His special presence dwell. And that, this was meant to be a reflection of what was lost in Eden for everyone, but it's restored in this symbolic way for one high priest to enter once a year. But in this symbolic way, it was pointing forward to the future, pull forward to this reality um, of God dwelling with us again forever. And so the story of the Bible really is the unfolding of God's story of dwelling with us again. So we lost his presence in Eden, and he brings it back symbolically in the tabernacle and then the temple. And then Jesus shows up and calls himself the temple because he is God's presence with us. 
John 1.14 says he tabernacled among us because he is God's presence uh, with us. And then Jesus died and was raised and he poured out his spirit. And now his spirit dwells among us as his temple. The Bible calls us right now, both individually as Christians and then gathered together as well as the temple of the living God because his spirit is with us right now, working even right now to take his word and his truth and press it into our hearts and transform us and delight into his presence right now. But we're waiting for the future when his presence will be felt more fully and we'll see him face to face. And that's what this future is for us here. In the new creation, his presence will be finally and fully restored to us. So this is the best part of the new creation to come. God himself is better than the best of this life. So right now, when you think about it, we have to pick between all the blessings of this physical life that we have or being with Jesus in heaven. The Apostle Paul felt that tension. In the book of Philippians, he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ because that's far better. So we have all the blessings of this life and they're good, but it's actually better to depart and be with Jesus, which is why death for a Christian is a step on the way to something better because you leave all this behind and you get Jesus and Jesus nets out as better than everything. But we have to pick right now. You know what the new creation is? It's both. We won't have to pick. Because we not only get Jesus, but we get all of the best of this life restored to us forever. That's the greatness of the new creation. So here is the question for us. How do we land there? How do we get in on this? Verses 6 to 8 contrast those who are inside the new creation and the new Jerusalem and those who are outside. So there's a great contrast here to eternal destinies. So how do we get inside? Well, in one sense, the answer is you just have to want it. Not just want want the stuff, but want God and His blessing. Verse 6, look at this. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without repayment. The future is offered to those who have nothing but a desire for God. If you're thirsty, He will give you to drink. And He's not asking for any payment ahead of time. It's not put on any credit card. There's no repayment offered later. Come and drink freely. So we do not come to God with a list of things we've done to earn our place at his table and our place in this new creation. This is not a reward for karma. Being thirsty has nothing to do with how good or bad of a person you have been in this life. It has nothing to do with our ethnicity or our social status or our accomplishments that we've racked up or failed to rack up. It's for those who thirst It's for for those who will receive this as a free gift, totally free. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to all who will come to drink. But you do need to trust Him. I mean, just being here on Sundays, liking this story of the Bible sermon series, 
thinking that would be really nice to be there. That isn't it. Trusting in Jesus is something specific. As Jesus himself said when he brought the kingdom and launched it at the beginning of his ministry, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. We turn from our sins and we trust in him. So we give ourselves to him. We follow him. We become his disciples. And we also need to see the importance not just of trusting Jesus as a one-time momentary thing, but we really to trust in Jesus truly is to trust him for life. You begin and you don't stop. It's not just a momentary thing. It's about staying loyal to him for a lifetime. Notice verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. So that's interesting. It's for those who thirst, who receive freely, and those who conquer. And those who conquer, this is a, a phrase, conquering and overcoming. It's used throughout the book of Revelation, especially early on. This is not for super Christians. This is not a super class of Christians. This is another way of referring to those who thirst to those who trust Jesus. There are also those who conquer, those who overcome. And in the book of Revelation, the final blessings of salvation are for those who conquer and alone for those who conquer. And what does it mean? What does it mean to conquer? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, it means you hold fast to Jesus. You don't let go of him. You don't give up. You don't abandon him. You hold fast to him and you hold fast in loyalty to him especially in the context when this book was first written. Um, and if you read in Revelation 2 and 3, when the risen Jesus is giving messages to his churches, to each church he's saying, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, you'll have this result. And the result is the blessings of the new creation. In, in these settings, Jesus is repeatedly telling his people to not compromise, to not give in to temptation and fall away, to not conform to the sinful cultural practices around them, to not let false teaching about Jesus just run rampant without saying anything. It's, it's a call to hold fast to Jesus in a culture that doesn't want you to and that thinks you're an idiot for doing that. That's what conquering means in the book of Revelation. So do you see the relevance for us today, <laughs> right? So to make it to the new creation, we have to conquer, which means we stay thirsty for Jesus we stay dependent on him, we hold fast to him, and we don't compromise. Um, and to whatever degree we may, we get back up and we repent and we trust him again, receiving his grace afresh over and over and over again. As Jesus himself said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So who's on the outside of the new creation then? Verse 8's a warning. But as for the cowardly, it's an interesting one to start the list with. The faithless, those who don't believe. The detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, right? The death beyond physical death. So why start with cowards? Probably because of what I was just mentioning, that the great temptation in the book of Revelation, is to uh, fear what other people think of you rather than trust the Lord, to be cowardly rather than steadfast in your faithfulness to Jesus in a culture that doesn't want you to be steadfast to Jesus. And so there is, there is a call that we need to have courage 
true faith is a courageous faith. It's not a weak thing. Um, it's trusting in Jesus even when it's hard, even in the temptation to shrink back in fear. So we'll probably be facing more of this, just as many Christians have throughout history and around the globe. More and more pressure in our culture to compromise. One of the great pressures today is to deny what Jesus and His Word teaches about gender and sexuality. One of the evidences of true faith is that we have courage to hold fast to Jesus and all that He has for us and all that He teaches. So this is incredibly relevant for Christians who find themselves in a post-Christian culture. And this vision is given to Christians in the first century and today who find themselves out of step with the culture by and large, faced with many temptations but needing encouragement. So this is for us. This is here to encourage you to hold fast, to not view wealth and power and accumulation of status symbols or acceptance of others as the thing that makes you feel secure, as your true home. To not dig in here in those things as your true home, but to let your true home be with Christ in the new creation to come. Well, we started this series with five purposes in mind, and so there were five reasons why we were doing this series, so I just want to end with these as well, uh, because these are still our purposes here uh, this morning. So, just going to list them. One, understand the big picture of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Plop down anywhere in it. You can make your way through as you view it in this story. Second, this helps us know God. God shows us who He is by how He saves. He reveals Himself in this story, His wisdom to think this up, His power to pull it off. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was there in the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. He's bringing it to completion. We can trust Him. This helps us know the real Jesus, the second Adam who succeeds where we fail, the true Passover lamb who gave his life as a sacrifice for us, the true eternal king from David's line, the one who brings in the true exodus from sin and death and slavery, the great friend of sinners, the giver of life who pours out his spirit on us. This shows us our identity and purpose. We're characters in this story. We live in this story being renewed now as we trust in Jesus to be renewed in the image of God, as we're renewed in the image of Jesus to reflect his character in the everyday stuff of life. And now we're also given the additional purpose to make disciples, to invite people to recognize they are part of a story, and we long for them to be part of the new creation to come, and they can find it by knowing Jesus. And then finally, this gives us a calming hope. In this world can be a really dark place. And a lot of people tell us where the arc of history is moving and where the right side of history is. This is the right side of history. We know where the arc of history is heading, and so we can hold fast to Jesus. So how would your Monday afternoon, tomorrow afternoon change if you really believed this? If you believed at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon that you were made in God's image and you matter, and every person you see has dignity, and that though you have absolutely blown it by your sin, the Lord is rescuing you through Jesus. He's died for you. He rose for you. He's poured out his spirit to give you a new heart, and he's coming again to renew all things. And you're heading to a future that will be the best of this life, minus the worst of this life, plus God who is better than life. How might that change how you're doing at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon? 
Let's pray then sing. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy to us, your great compassion for us, and your wisdom, infinite wisdom in planning this future for us. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to Jesus for our great joy and your glory forever.